for what you would say to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, you may be seated. You may be seated. What a joy it is to uh, be back worshiping with you again. Hope Ottawa, in amidst snowstorms and in amidst lots of sickness and all this stuff, it is so good to be together. Let's get after it. Acts chapter 5. We are today, Acts chapter 5, starting at verse 1, and Lord willing, we go all the way to the end of verse 16. So if you do not have a copy of God's Word with you, then please put up your hand, and our ushers are coming forward right now. We want to put a copy of God's Word in your lap, all right? Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 16. Just put your hands up nice and high, and our ushers will be there momentarily. And uh, here we are in our next message after a couple weeks off. Here we are in our next message in the series on the book of Acts. And as you know, if you've been here for more into one, listening to one of these messages for more than a week now, you will know that the main theme of the book of Acts is witness, one who testifies to the person and work of Jesus Christ, even to the point of giving one's own life so that others may hear the gospel, respond, and live. And so the title of this evening's message is The Witness Posture. The Witness Posture. That word posture there means attitude. What is the attitude of a faithful witness to be? What is the way that they are to conduct themselves and live their lives regardless of the situation that they face. And what we see not just here in this text, but all throughout scripture is this, the the witness posture of one who is faithful to Jesus Christ is a posture of reverence. A posture of reverence at all times and in all things. Now let's get some clarity on what we're talking about here when we say reverence. In a biblical context, it means this. You'll see it on the screen. It is a posture of increasing awe of, love for, and obedience to the Lord above all. There is a posture of reverence that we are called to live if we are to live faithfully for Jesus Christ. A posture of increasing awe of the Lord, a love for the Lord, and an obedience as an overflow of that love to the Lord above all. We could break this down. To live with a posture of reverence means we increasingly are longing for the presence of God over the presence of this world in our lives. It means that we are longing for an increasing sense of his power at work in our lives. To live with a posture of reverence means we live increasingly with a posture of God's purity, Not what this world defines as purity, what God defines as purity. Increasing posture of his holiness in our lives and a turning away from sin and a turning toward more and more into the image of Jesus Christ by his power at work in us. An increasing posture of reverence means an increasing posture of loving what God loves. Do you love what God loves, church? Loving what he loves, It means living with integrity, doing what God says is right, even when no one is watching. Doing what God says is right, even when there's a cost. Living with reverence means prioritizing what God prioritizes. 
what he says to prioritize in our lives and not prioritizing what this world says or what our flesh desires. An increasing posture of reverence means grieving over sin that grieves God's heart. Are we grieving over our sin with a godly grief, as Paul says in Corinthians? Or is it a worldly grief? More so, I don't like the consequences as a result of that. Posture of reverence lives with godly grief. If I could sum it up, means living with a posture of reverence means living with a healthy fear of the Lord. It is a fear of the Lord. And I think right now you see the problem, even from those, that few little brief snapshots. Here's the problem you and I face every day. We often live with a fear of anyone or anything but God. Just think about that even in your own life. We often live with a fear of anyone or anything but God. A fear of man? Check. A fear of failure? Yes. A fear of the unknown? Yes. What about a fear of the Lord? A reverence and honor above all for him. See, instead of living with a posture of reverence for him above all, we revere celebrities. Here's another thing that happens. We revere our jobs. We put them in his place. We revere our culture and the sin that it promotes. We revere our possessions. We revere the finances that God's entrusted to us. We revere ourselves. That means we want the glory that only God deserves. And and so quickly we revere our sin and make excuses for it. Instead of living with a reverent humility before God, we approach him. Here's the result of a lack of reverence. We approach him with a casual flippancy. Are we approaching God with flippancy today, loved ones? A casual flippancy that doesn't take sin seriously. Like it's no big deal. It minimizes it. It minimizes the truth that our sin grieves his heart, defiles his church, and fails to uphold his holiness. And what is the result of a lack of reverence in our lives for the Lord and in the church corporately as we embrace these other values and revere them? Here's the result. One word, devastation. And you see it happening all over in churches all over today and in the lives of believers. Here, can we just make something very clear before we jump into the rest of this text? You'll see it on the screen. Sin will only lead you to destruction. Sin will only lead to destruction. Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. It always overpromises and it always underdelivers. It makes vast promises that it will be so good for you and it will feel so good and oh, that will turn out well. No, never. Loved ones, here's the truth we need to see from Acts 5. It's a very sobering text, by the way. My heart has been very heavy this week and last week in preparation of this. In fact, I just asked in the pre-service prayer room, how many of you have heard a, a sermon on Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 16 before, and no one around the table had heard one in a previous church? That will tell you something. Here's what we need to see right here. Sin must be taken seriously because God takes it seriously. And maybe you're here and you don't like to hear that. You take that up with the Lord. 
Sin must be taken seriously because God takes it seriously. God is actually, James 4, 5, jealous for the purity of his church. It says he yearns earnestly for the spirit that he's put inside each of us that was created to glorify him and is being tainted by the presence and love of sin. So here's the big idea for our text today. You'll see it on the screen. To live as a faithful witness for Christ, see it so clearly right here, we must live with an increasing reverence of Christ. To live as a faithful witness for Christ, we must live with an increasing, we never hit our reverence ceiling here, an increasing reverence of Christ. And here in our text today, we're gonna see a warning and we're gonna see an encouragement of two marks of a faithful witness living with an increasing reverence for the Lord and the blessing of God on the witness or on the church that fears his name. You ready to go? Let's stand to honor the authority of God's word. We're gonna read Acts chapter five. We're only gonna read the first 11 verses today and then we will get into it. Acts chapter five, one to 11. Let's go, nice and loud. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband." And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Hear the word of the Lord and all God's people said, Amen. Not exactly the bedtime story you may want to tell your children, right? But nonetheless, this is why I love what we do at this church, expositional preaching. Verse by verse, line by line, because you don't get to skip the tough stuff. God help us. If we skip the tough stuff, it's in here for a reason, so let's get after it. First thing we see is this. A faithful witness, if we're going to live faithfully on mission for Christ, must be with a posture of increasing reverence. And a faithful witness is a reverent witness who, what do they do? Keeps God's priority. What is God's priority at all times and in all things? Holiness. Holiness is God's priority. Question, Reverence prioritizes the holiness of God. Is it your priority? 
Is the holiness of God your priority in your life? In how you are raising the children that God has entrusted to you to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord? Is holiness, the holiness of God, your priority? Let's get our context. Here we are in Jerusalem. And if you remember from Acts chapter 4, the church has just been through its first wave of opposition. And persecution at the hands of the Sanhedrin, which was the supreme court, if you will, of the Jews. And why have they been hauled into court? For preaching the gospel. And so they have been commanded that they can no longer preach that. And yet, what do they do? They can't go against God's word, just like we can't go against God's word today. So the church starts to pray for boldness, and then they just go on speaking it anyway. And then we see in verse 32 to 37, we see the beautiful picture of life in the early church as we saw a united witness in radical generosity and meeting one another's needs. What a beautiful text that was. The church is growing. They're having favor. These are great times. Church is growing. They're having favor with God and man as God's grace and power is poured out on them as he blesses their unity of the spirit. Things are going really well. Now we get to Acts 5. And it starts, do you, check, do you see it in verse 1? Go back to the text, the very first word. What does it say? But. You know what that means? Uh-oh. But. All this stuff's going really well. But. See, here's what we, gotta, here's what we have to understand about how the enemy works. That we see right from the book of Acts. Satan's first attempt to stop the church was unsuccessful, wasn't it? He tried to come against them through an external means of persecution. I'll just get the apostles threatened, get them thrown into jail, threaten them with more jail time and beatings and maybe killing, and that'll stop, that'll scare them all. Notice the external opposition didn't work, did it? The church is still growing, praise the Lord. But here's what we gotta understand about the enemy, loved ones. Don't deceive yourself, the enemy just doesn't roll over. When he comes against us, individually or as a church, the enemy just doesn't roll over when we see God give a victory. He reloads. He reloads. And we, this is exactly what we see here. He reloads against the church. Notice, Satan tried to stop them through an external means of persecution from the Sanhedrin on the outside of the church. But now what does he do? He goes into something that I would very much argue is even more deadly. He comes at them internally. It's not through external persecution anymore. Now he reloads and comes at them internally through what? The corruption of the heart and through sin in the church. And so right here in Acts 5, this is an absolutely crucial moment for the church. This is an absolute crucial moment for the church. God makes it very clear very early on about the seriousness of sin his holy character, and how sin must be dealt with quickly in the church. Same as today. There are too many churches with too much sin going on unchecked. And you look at the division that's happening in the church, the lives that are being destroyed through gossip and slander, and you see why God needs to make a statement quickly here. You let the devil get a foot in the door, he's gonna make sure he slams it in your face very quickly and comes all the way in. It's not a joke. 
It's not to be made lightly of. And so here it is. Notice, if we're going to understand what's happening here, 36 to 37, back up a few verses. Barnabas has just been held up in recognition as an example of generosity by selling a field and laying it at the apostles' feet. But now look at verses 1 and 2. So that's amazing. Praise the Lord. Go Barnabas. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge... You just see the conspiracy going on. He kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. See, we see a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. They also sold a piece of property, but there's a big difference between them in verse 2 and Barnabas in 36 to 37. Whereas Barnabas is held up as this model of radical generosity, Ananias and Sapphira conspired. What do they do? To keep back a portion of the proceeds of the sale. And they only laid a portion of the proceeds at the apostles' feet, even though, notice the, you might say, well, what's the matter with that? Isn't that still really generous? Yes, except the implication, did you catch it in the text? The implication here is that they stated before God and before the church they would be giving the whole amount to the Lord. So what are they walking in here? Hypocrisy, deception, greed, lying. Filled with it. And God sees it. And you say, well, how do you know this? That's kind of some serious charges here. Well, look at verse 2. The phrase kept back. That phrase there means to embezzle or steal. They're stealing what was promised to God. They're embezzling it. In fact, if we're still not convinced, this same phrase is used in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, to describe what Achan did in hiding silver from Jericho when he was not supposed to. Same phrase. And what happened to the Israelites when they went and fought the army of Ai that they should have been able to beat with their junior varsity team? They got wiped out because God's hand was not upon them. Because there was sin in the camp. This is what's going on here. This is what's at stake. So here's the problem. Now the church needs to confront the sin in the camp that must be dealt with. And so Peter... Notice this, Peter, given wisdom by the Holy Spirit, he confronts Ananias and says, look at verses three to four, keep reading. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? He just laid down a portion of the proceeds instead of saying, oh, that's good enough. You can offer God that even though you promised. We'll let it slide. It's a little generous. He goes, why? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold did it not remain your own and after it was sold was it not at your disposal why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart you have not lied to man you've not just lied to the church you've lied ultimately to God and that phrase in verse verse 3 where it says Satan filled your heart I want you to notice something, circle it. That should sober us because in chapters two to four, did you notice how many times it says, now they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. And now things change. And now Peter says, why are you filled with Satan? Who is Satan, by the way? 
Let's do a little theology here. He's the father of lies. He's described as by Jesus Christ. Satan is the enemy of God. What God will exalt, Satan will try to bring down. He is the deceiver. And notice notice this. He filled and corrupted the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira with the temptations to sin. Here it is. Just keep a little bit. But get the glory for yourself. Look really good by telling everyone you're going to give so much. But then just give a little bit because you're going to need a little bit later. He fills them with the temptation. He can't make them sin, but he tempts them and they choose it. And they take the bait and in doing so, notice what they did. They didn't lie simply to the church. They lied to the Holy Spirit, which you see some theology of the Holy Spirit right here, pneumatology. It is the study of the Holy Spirit. He is God Almighty himself. You lied to the Holy Spirit, which is lying to God himself, verse four. Third person of the Trinity, fully God. And so Peter says, notice Peter's response to Ananias. He's like, Ananias, why? Why would you do this? No no one required you to sell this land. This was not some legalistic offering. No one required you to say the giving was voluntary, joyful, cheerful, sacrificial. There's no, there's no legalistic amount attached to this. It was, the land was already yours. Even after you sold it, you were under no obligation to give every proceed of it to the church. Why did you, verse four, why did you contrive? The word contrive there means to deliberately plan. Notice, you can see it in verses 1 and 2, the scheming going on, the planning with his wife. Why did you contrive this deed, this sin in your heart? Why'd you do it, Ananias? And without getting a chance to respond, here's what happens. Verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. I'll say it again. Don't miss it. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Loved ones, God will not be mocked. His holiness is at stake here. And he's jealous for the hearts of his people. Righteous jealousy. It's not sinful. Ananias literally drops dead in front of the church as a result of God's divine judgment against unrepented of sin and an assault on his holiness. And he's carried out of the room by young men. Did you see that in verse 6? The young men. I want, you know what? I was wondering why. The Holy Spirit inspired Luke to specifically say it was the young men. And I don't, I don't have a final answer. But what I, what I do know is, I bet you those young men, if they got married, do you think that would impact how they discipled their children and their wife in a fear of the Lord? Lord, raise up young men who fear your name. 
that don't let children trample the holiness of God in the home. Who discipline and train and intercede. The young men rose and wrapped them up and carried them out and buried them. And then in verses 7 to 11, watch what happens. Sapphira, the co-conspirator, see that, comes in three hours later. She's got no idea what happened to her husband. She's just waltzing into the church again. No idea what's happened. In verse 10, what happens? Let's read it together. After Peter confronts her again, how is it that you've agreed, sorry, verse nine, that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? He asks her again, did you sell it for this much? Oh yeah, totally that much. He goes, how is it that you've agreed together to test, we'll get to that in a moment, the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who've buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out immediately. She fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. She drops dead under God's judgment against sin. She's carried out and buried next to her husband. And so what it... Just be sobered by this, but notice what's the result of both of these things. You'll see it in verse 5 and verse 11. Did you see the result? This is what God wants to happen in the church. Verse 5 to 11, a great fear of the Lord, a great reverence for the Lord came upon all in the church, and not just in the church. You see the word? Outside of the church who heard about this instance. A reverence came upon the church. And you may sit there, and you may say this, loved ones, because we can read this, and we can be like, well, this is, isn't this harsh or extreme? Isn't God up there? Is, does this mean God's up there just like some unloving judge just waiting to smack us? And doesn't seem harsh or extreme over that sin? I mean, didn't they still give some? Shouldn't we just cut them some slack? Right? Might seem a little harsh. Um, here's why it may seem harsh or extreme to you. The judgment that was put on Ananias and Sapphira only seems harsh or extreme if you minimize their sin by minimizing the holiness of God. That's the only way that seems harsh. The only way God's judgment on them seems extreme is if you minimize the sin. And the only way you can minimize the sin is by minimizing the holiness of God, which is an assault against it. As one commentator said, they wanted the reputation of Barnabas without having the character of Barnabas. How many of us want the reputation but don't have the character? I want the glory. See, their motive, Ananias and Sapphira's motive in giving and serving the Lord was not God's glory. It was not his prestige. It was not his renown, but it was their own. And today, like Ananias and Sapphira, let's be honest, loved ones, we too often live a life of duplicity as well. A life of hypocrisy, deceit, selfishness, and greed. We want to look good on the outside. We may say the right things, 
may sing the songs, give the offerings, all of this, but inside, Jesus is looking right inside. Our motives are corrupted. Loved ones, here, here as your pastor, I feel the weight with you. I'm with you on this. But hear the warning. God takes that very seriously. What you're harboring right there. It's not a joke to him. It's not a light thing. And this is, as I got thinking about this, I was saying this to Kevin uh, on our trip recently. This is probably my biggest concern for those who want to be in leadership. This is probably my biggest concern for brothers and sisters in Christ, for staff members and future staff members, for future elders, is this. Where's the fear of the Lord? The fear that will not excuse sin. The fear that longs for God's holiness over our agenda. And I wonder, it got me thinking, loved ones, if God did in this room right now, right here, what he did here in Acts 5 in that room, how many of us would be left sitting here? How many of us would be left? And the answer is, I don't know. Would I? I I hope so. I don't know. But God sees it. And reverence, listen, loved ones, reverence prioritizes the holiness of God. Is it your priority? Where are you and I living a life of insincerity with a lack of integrity, saying the right things but concealing arrogant motives, exhorting others in godliness while looking at pornography and rancid entertainment, saying one thing but living another, lying, living a life of gluttony and deception while saying all the right words. Where is your character not lining up with your confession? Just get real before the Lord. Where is your character not lining up with your confession? Where, like Ananias and Sapphira, are you testing God? That verse in verse 9, you're testing him and just presuming that he won't act in your life to uphold his holiness. Where are you presuming on God's forgiveness? Presuming on his forbearance? Where are you testing that? You gonna do it, God? I'm just going to let this sin go. You're going to do it? You're not going to do it. That's what they're doing right here. Do not test the Lord. And you may, and you may say this, and we're under the new covenant now. He's like, this seems like, like Old Testament stuff, you know? Someone sins and the fire from heaven, all this stuff. We're in the new covenant now. That's like Old Covenant stuff. There, there, there's grace for all of this. We're in the new covenant, right? Well, loved ones, Hey, guess what? We're in the new covenant right here in Acts 5. This is the new covenant. And here's what we have to understand from Acts 5. You'll see it on the screen. God's grace. You know how so often we sin and we're like, oh, there's grace for that sin. There's grace for that. Like, okay, check our hearts. What do you think you mean by that? God's grace is not given to you so you could go on sinning. 
Neither me. God's grace is not given to you or I to go on sinning, but so you and I would have the power to overcome it in Jesus' name. That's why God gives us his grace. Not as an excuse for sin, but the power over sin. And too often we hear things like, well, there's grace. Oh, yeah, grace. I'll just presume on God on this and this and this. Greatest act of God's grace was him sending his son to pay the penalty for our sin in our place. Do you remember what Jesus went through for that, for you and I? He's not doing that so we could go on sinning and make excuses for it and presume on God's forbearance. See, it's his grace that's giving you a chance right now to repent Like Ananias and Sapphira, Peter confronts them. That's act of God's grace. Repent, there's your chance. But you decided to follow your sin to its dead end. This is why Romans 6.2, you see God's grace. Romans 6.2, this is why Paul says, does this mean that, that we can just go on sinning so that grace may abound all the more? And then he says, by no means. The Greek term means God forbid we think that way. By no means. Do we go on sinning? That grace, what, there's more grace, there's more grace. Yes, there's grace to, to destroy the sin in our lives, not to empower it. Loved ones, make no mistake, God will not be mocked, Galatians 6, 7. He will not be mocked. There is nothing hidden, Luke eight seventeen. There's nothing hidden that will not be revealed. This should put the fear of the Lord in us. Not, to, not that we're cowering before the Lord, but there's a longing to uphold his holiness out of love for him to recognize the price that Jesus paid for you and I not to engage in that anymore. See, and all throughout history, Satan has corrupted the hearts of many to sow dissension and division in the church. His tactic has not changed. Even today, look at the last three years. COVID-19, you think he didn't have a heyday? In the church? He works corruption through gossip and slander and grumbling. You think it's just a little grumbling? Complaining, unforgiveness, deception, duplicity. Maybe even some of us right here in that. Loved one, are you allowing this in your life, in this church? This isn't just for the pastors and elders to confront We are called as the body of Christ, Ephesians 4.15, to speak the truth and love to one another. Galatians 6, 1 and 2, to help restore one another in our sin and to bear one another's burdens. Loved one, heed the word, repent, that times of refreshing would come from the Lord. A faithful witness is a reverent witness who does what? They keep God's priority of holiness increasing by the power of Jesus Christ And from this, final point today is this. A faithful witness is a reverent witness who keeps God's priority, and from the overflow of that, they see God's power in fruitfulness. When sin is purged, get this, when sin is purged, God's power is seen. When sin is purged, God's power is seen. Question facing you and I. Will you and I humble ourselves and repent? Look at verses 12 to 16. Watch what happens. You might think, think, well, no church is going to want to do this because no one will come. No one will come to the church. Watch this, watch this, watch this. Many signs and wonders done. Watch this. 
Now many signs and wonders regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Sin gets purged, God's power gets seen. Many signs and wonders. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. Here, you'll see a picture on the screen. There's Solomon's portico. It's in the temple, remember? It's that porch they did their main witnessing at. Verse 13. None of, look at this, verse 13. None of the rest dared join them. They're like, I'm not joining the church. These are non-believers. They're like, oh, I'm not going near there. There's consequences for my sin. But the people still held them. Unbelievers still held the church in high esteem. And watch verse 14. And even though some didn't join them, look at 14. Sin gets purged, and more than ever, believers are added to the Lord. God will see to that. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitude, look at the term. Multitudes of both men and women. So that, here's what's happening as a result. So that even... They even carried out the sick into the streets, laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. That's how much they saw the power of God at work. They're like, man, this guy just needs to give us a piece of his shadow walking by and be healed. Now, there's nothing in Scripture that says Peter's shadow was healing anyone. But they were like, we see the power of God here. Verse 16, the people also gathered from the towns. Now you see it's starting to spread. They're coming from towns outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now they're starting to come. Bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. See, here we are back in Solomon's portico where the early church did much of their witnessing. And after the Lord purges the sin from the camp, holiness is upheld, unity is restored, and the power of God starts freely flowing. The mission goes on with increasing power and fruitfulness, notice, with many signs and wonders. This was God performing miracles to authenticate the truth of the gospel. Now notice the response of the people of the church's reverent posture. The church is held in high esteem. There is respect there. doesn't mean everyone who heard the disciples proclaim the gospel believed and joined the church, but they held them in high regard. Now, you notice why they held them in high regard? This is a great lesson for us today. They held, notice the text. They held the church in high regard, not because the church was trying to be relevant, but because they were being reverent. They're not watering anything down just to draw a crowd. They held them in high regard because... They weren't trying to be relevant, but they stayed reverent and there was distinction and holiness and the awe of God and the power of God. And it breaks my heart and it should for yours as well to see so many believers in churches pursuing relevance at the cost of reverence. See, you'll see it on the screen. We are not called to pursue relevance with the world at the cost of reverence before the Lord. God's word is relevant. Trying to make God's word relevant is like trying to make water wet. It is relevant. It speaks to every heart today. It speaks to the conditions of the culture today. Our job is not to water it down and try to be like the world, but to show them the holiness of God in his power. And you may say this. You may say this. Well, I don't think that's going to be effective. 
reverence. And it's not unpopular today. Maybe this is the first sermon you've ever heard. Look at that. That's on me if you've been here for more than like two weeks. But here's the reality. Maybe this is one of the first sermons that you've heard where it's like, ah, holiness and reverence. You guys are Bible thumpers. You say, I don't think it's going to be effective. Here, hey, au contraire, mon frere. How's my French? Au contraire, mon frere. You think that's not going to be effective? You don't think God's going to show his power through the church that is increasingly low before him? Notice verse 14 again. Circle this term. More than ever, believers were added. More than ever. Look, it's not going to be effective. Who said? That's man thinking, not God thinking. God's going to draw people to the church that is increasingly glorifying him. More than ever, they're at it. Multitudes of men and women. Recall Acts 2 and 3, where thousands had already been added. The sick had been healed, and now we see thousands more than ever. Boom. Demons are being cast out. Verse 16, as God's power is flowing and fruitfulness is increasing through his church that is increasingly living with a posture of reverence before him in his power, keeping his priority of holiness and seeing his power. You know where reverence comes from? If I could sum it up as we go into communion, watch this. Reverence comes from a low view of sin and a high view of God. Here it is. You want to live a life of reverence? Here it is. In God's power, a low view of sin and a high view of God. Right there. When sin is purged, God's power is seen. Hope Ottawa, men and women, youth in this room, Will you humble yourself and repent? Do not test the Lord. Do not test the Lord. Will you humble yourself and repent? Even tonight, maybe some of you are here and like Ananias and Sapphira, you're hiding something from from the Lord. You're saying one thing, you're living another way. There's a duplicity, there's a hypocrisy. There's a, where, 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 where? Get it right before, look. Maybe it's a relationship with someone. There's unforgiveness. There's tension. Do not wait. Do not test the Lord. Get it right. Look what's at stake. The power of God, the the purity of God, the holiness of God, the unity of God in his church. So after a message like this, loved ones, I know it's heavy. I get it. Not even my French could lift the weight. I know it's heavy. It needs to be. But it's so important right now that we take time to be still before the Lord and ask him to search our hearts right now. This is a crucial, this is a sacred moment as we come to the communion table. And here at this table right now, we will remember our hope and the life-giving grace of Jesus Christ that is offered to us through him, his blood, as our Savior. See, you want to hear a great truth? You want to hear filled with lots of hope? Where's the hope in this text? I'll show you the hope in this text. Jesus died so you and I didn't have to. There's the hope. Jesus died so you and I wouldn't have to. We must choose to follow him. And, and notice this. You say, well, Acts, didn't you say Acts was just prescriptive and there's some descriptive stuff? And okay, let, okay, fair argument. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 11, our communion text for tonight. He says, whoever 
eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that means without examining, where's the ongoing sin in our lives we need to repent of, will be guilty concerning the blood, the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, hear it, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And verse 30 is a sobering warning. That is why, church in Corinth, many of you are weak and ill and some have died because of your sin. This is not a light thing. And so, as we come to the table to remember Christ's death for us, now he paid the penalty for our sin so we would not have to to receive forgiveness and walk in freedom and new life. There's two elements we do this with. Number one is the, the bread, which represents his body that was crushed for us. And the juice, which represents the blood that was shed for us to cleanse us from every sin that we ever have or ever will commit. If you are saved in Jesus Christ, that is your truth right there over your life. And so let us examine ourselves right now. Let's be still. Lord, where, where have I been making excuses? Let's just go bow our heads right now. Where have I been making excuses that it's just a little hypocrisy? It's just a little pornography. It's just a little grumbling. It's just a little gossip. It's just a little greed or selfishness. Where have I not been bringing up my children in the training and instruction of the Lord and not upholding your holiness in my home, in my marriage? Where have I been excusing it, but saying the right things? Search me, O God, and know my heart, and test my anxious thoughts, and see where the offensive ways are in me, and lead me in the path everlasting. And as the Lord, the Holy Spirit, brings these things to my be so quick to repent. His reverence over our reputation. Just be so quick. There is freedom, there is comfort, there is joy, there's times of refreshing. Do not harden your heart. And for those of you who may be here and you've never confessed Jesus as your personal Savior before, I want to say two things to you. I'm going to ask you not to take the elements because you've just heard the warning in Scripture. This is the table of God for the children of God. And so do not take them. And I would encourage you, implore you, to ask the Lord the question, do I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Am I saved? Do I believe he is the son of God? Do I believe that he came as fully God and fully man? Have I repented of my sin and trusted him alone as my personal savior? Or am I still making excuses as to why I don't need to do that? It doesn't, it doesn't mean that for me. Be honest with him. And today can be the day of your salvation. Say, yes, Jesus, I believe. So let's take a few minutes now.